Hello, and welcome to Small World, Big Problems, a podcast from the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies here in Washington, D.C. My name is Eli George, and today I'll be joined by not one, but two guests to discuss civil-military relations, that is, the relationship between the United States military and American civil society. Our first guest is Lieutenant General David Barna. His career as an officer in the U.S. Army spans four decades, having served in Grenada, Panama, and most recently as commander of the Combined Forces Command in Afghanistan from 2003 to 2005. We're also joined by Dr. Nora Bensahel, who is an expert on U.S. defense policy and the future of American military strategy. She previously served as a senior political scientist for the RAND Corporation, a senior fellow at the Center for New American Security, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Both are currently contributing columnists for War on the Rocks and are professors here at the School of Advanced International Studies. General Barno, Dr. Benzahel, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Now, I want to start off with sort of a uh, table-setting question. A lot of people, I think, assume that the relationship between the U.S. government and the U.S. military is one-directional, that the government gives the military its orders and then the military carries out whatever task they need to carry out. But I imagine that the actual relationship is a lot more complex. Can you elaborate on that relationship? I think it is complex and, and it's there's many different facets to it. There's one aspect of civil military relations is how the American people see their military and how the U.S. military interacts with the American people. Uh, a second aspect is how the senior leaders in the military, especially the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, interact with the commander-in-chief at the top of the chain of command, the president and the secretary of defense. And a third layer is how the military essentially interacts with those that do civilian oversight of the military, whether it's civilian leaders in the office of the secretary of defense or members of Congress and the Senate and the House. So there's, there's actually many different aspects to this, and each of those comes with their own challenges and their own problems and evolves in some different ways over time. And it's really important that it isn't just a one-way relationship. The relationship between the military and the society that it serves flows both ways, and it has to be that way in a democracy. Um, you know, the military is not some separate institution, as we're going to talk about today. It recruits people from the population. And so, uh, you know, having the broader American society aware of what the military is doing, giving uh, at those senior levels of decision-making. Uh, oversight and direction, but also senior military folks uh, talking to senior decision makers and offering their best military advice. So it's a very complicated two-way relationship, more than I think most people understand. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And, you know, uh, something that many people just in the general public may not realize is how much civilians are involved in the Department of Defense and likewise how much valuable advice the civilian sector gets from military professionals. Now, General Barno, I want to ask you about your experience in the military. As we said in the intro, you served in the Army for four decades. You graduated West Point in 1976. That's three years after the start of the all-volunteer force. Now, currently, and as you both are aware, the, the United States doesn't force anyone to serve in the military. Everyone who serves is a volunteer, but that's not a given. The all-volunteer force was created in 1973 after the Vietnam War. So can you maybe talk about some of the motivations for transitioning from a, a draftee force to an all-volunteer force, maybe the effect that it had on the military from your perspective and, and how you saw that change over the course of your career? Sure. And I served in parts of four decades in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the 00s at different times. Um, total about uh, three decades in uniform plus you know four years at West Point on top of that. 
But it, the, the military I joined in 1976 when I graduated from West Point looks nothing like U.S. military today. It, you know, as you know, it was only three years after the abolition of the draft. And it was the beginning years of the all-volunteer force. And the military was a broken military after Vietnam, not because of the draftees, but because of how contentious the war was and how divisive that became inside the country and then ultimately inside the military. And so even in the first eight or 10 years of the all-volunteer force that I experienced as a young officer, um, the quality of the recruits was, was quite poor in a lot of respects. The discipline problems were immense. Drug problems and race problems were very significant. And this is during the all-volunteer force. Throughout the 1980s, I think the U.S. military famously rebuilt itself into the force that we would recognize today using those volunteers and improving quality you know, enhancing discipline, you know, eliminating the majority of drug abuse, you know, healing a lot of the racial relations that were so fraught during the Vietnam era. And in that military that, you know, that I served with in the last half of my career was vastly different than the volunteer military in the first part of my career. And I think, again, sometimes the draftees get a bad name or a draftee military gets a bad name because of some of these challenges that were somewhat unique to Vietnam. But the military had a very effective draft military from, you know, 1950 until 1973. And only in the last five or six years of Vietnam War, four or five years, did that military really become torn apart by internal conflicts and really a contentionist about the nature of the war itself that, that was reflecting the American people in that respect. But again, a very different military in the high quality, you know, very impressive all-volunteer, sometimes called a professional force we have today is is result of a lot of hard work by a lot of people in those early years of volunteer force, particularly in the 70s and 80s. Well, and I imagine you can't just flip a switch and suddenly have an all-volunteer force, right? So were there changes that the military had to make in order to make that transition as far as how things were organized? You know, were people um, given higher salaries working for the military? Um, did they have to change their recruiting tactics at all? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and clearly, you know, first place to start would be recruiting, you know, that you all of a sudden, instead of having a reliable pool of human beings that are coming in every month based on draft calls, now the military had to find its own recruits out there among the population. Uh, even in the Vietnam era, you know, over half the military was volunteers, particularly in Vietnam, but to, to recruit the entire military only with volunteers is a huge challenge. So the military had to really revamp its whole recruiting process the Army famously came up with its uh, its recruiting slogan, be all that you can be during this time, which is probably the most successful slogan they've ever had. They've recently reintroduced that, and interestingly enough. Uh, so that was one area where, you know, trying to find high quality recruits, attract them to a force that did not have a good reputation, frankly, coming out of the Vietnam War, and then retain the best of those to be the leaders was, was a big challenge. And as you know, too, you know, they had to take a look at what pay and benefits were for those people. When I was a junior lieutenant in the military, I was married and, and had been in about two and a half years. Uh, we had our first child. At first lieutenant salary, I qualified for the WIC program, which is a assistance program for low-income families. And I was an officer. I wasn't even in the enlisted force. And so there were some significant changes made to how much we were paying junior enlisted people. And, and slowly that hit the officer corps as well. So uh, again, today you've got a, a pretty well compensated force. There's still some places where there's probably more resources needed, especially for the junior enlisted folks that, that have families in particular. I would add, I guess, to that also that the military internally, I don't think changed a great deal other than to reintroduce discipline, training, focus on the mission. The unit structures remain the same. The unit heritages remain the same. The, the unit life in a lot of ways remain the same. But it rebuilt uh, from being you know, very, very broken up by the Vietnam War to, 
to an army that looked more perhaps like the army in the 1950s or early 60s in its own way. So it, it was a transformation. And as that process was underway, you're absolutely right. It didn't, you know, turn on a dime. Um, but they were able to slowly increase standards across a wide range of things, you know, eliminating drug use from the force. They couldn't do that immediately because they still had to get people to join the military and were, mm -hmm. you're stuck with the people who will volunteer in a lot of ways, right? I mean, you, you go out to the society, but immediately after Vietnam, the military was so tarnished with the experience of what happened in Vietnam that there weren't a lot of people who were willing to serve. But as that faded over time, as you move forward in time, and I think particularly in the 80s uh, with the Reagan administration and they focus on the Soviet Union again, we started getting more people who were interested, young people who hadn't lived through the Vietnam experience. And slowly over time, you're able to raise the standard, you know, what you're willing to tolerate in terms of drug use. Uh, you know, you could gradually raise the, the scholastic aptitude. So by the time you really get into the uh, you know, mid 80s and certainly demonstrated by the 1991 Gulf War, you have an incredibly professional force that's performing to a very high standard. That was due to the commitment of a lot of uh, officers and uh, NCOs who made the very difficult decision to stay in that broken military and rebuild it over time. And again, that that process is sort of seen as culminating in the uh, overwhelming victory in the 1991 Gulf War. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it certainly makes sense that having um, a military made up of people who want to be there will be more enthusiastic, will have higher morale, will be maybe more disciplined. But, you know, you mentioned that uh, those recruiting problems that the military might run into, and, and that does seem to be the biggest difficulty of having an all-volunteer force. So how are we doing right now as far as recruitment goes? We are facing the biggest crisis in recruiting that the all-volunteer force has ever faced. In its 50 years, the recruiting mm. problems have never been as bad as they have been in the last two years uh, in terms of the number of people coming into the services who are able to meet the standards. It is a very significant problem. Last year, for example, the Army was 10,000 people short of its uh, recruiting goals. The Secretary of the Army, Christine Wormuth, said at that time that if the trends did not change and spoiler alert, they have not changed, uh, that this year the army could be down by as much as 20,000 people. That would be a cut of 30,000 people over two years for reasons that have nothing to do with military strategy, with the strategic environment, right? It's not that we had a national conversation and decided we should have a smaller army. It's being purely driven by the number of eligible and willing recruits. And are you seeing those maybe similar patterns in, in other branches of the military as well, outside of the army? Yeah, the, the army is often the leading indicator for these. And there are a couple of reasons why some of the other services were able to make their numbers last year. Uh, all the other services did, but for some, just barely, just by the skin of their teeth. Mm -hmm. They resorted to a number of things that you can do once, but that you can't repeat. So for example, each force has a pool of what are known as delayed entry applicants, people who are in the pipeline, but not planning to come in until the next fiscal year for a variety of reasons. So some of the services made their numbers last year by accelerating those and, and bringing them in early. That means you don't have a pool of those people you can draw from again this year. I just saw some numbers saying that the Navy is anticipating being 10,000 sailors short this year, even though they met their numbers. So it is a, a challenging environment for all of the services. There may also have been an effect that helped bump up recruiting last year in both the Air Force and mm -hmm. the Navy because of the success of Top Gun 2. When the original Top Gun came out, there are studies now that show that 
uh, recruiting and uh, enlistments in the Air Force and the Navy, because most people who saw the fighter jets didn't distinguish between naval air, which is what Maverick is. He's a naval <laughs> fighter pilot. Uh, they can't distinguish between that and Air Force fighter pilots. Um, but that, that the original Top Gun boosted in, uh, enlistment by about 8%. So if there was a similar effect last year, that's also a one-time thing that isn't going to happen again this year. Yeah, I mean, they, they can't keep on pumping out Top Gun movies <laughs> that, that might have diminishing returns yeah. eventually. They can't keep pumping out good ones, so. <laughs> um, so this is maybe a bit alarming, um, the, this this recruiting shortfall. 10,000 and 20,000 is, is a lot of people, but it may not seem like that huge of an amount compared to the overall size of the U.S. armed forces. But if this trend continues, um, as, as you said that it might, what's the, the worst case scenario that we see here? Is the U.S. going to reach the point where it isn't able to meet its strategic goals? It is absolutely a, a source of concern when you look at the U.S. ability to achieve its security objectives around the world and to protect its own security. The force is right now shrinking, again, because of reasons that have nothing to do with the types of threats that the United States faces and so on. Uh, and because there is no realistic prospect for a draft outside of some national emergency of tremendous scale that galvanizes the American public, sort of another 9-11-like event, mm -hmm. because you know nobody supports reinstating the draft, what that means is that the U.S. military, if it cannot attract enough people... And if the measures that the services are taking to try to improve eligibility and to try to get more people interested in service, the military uh, faces the very real possibility of just continuing to shrink, which means that it may not be of the right size and the right capability uh, when the next big conflict occurs. And for uh, defense analysts like us, that's an incredibly scary prospect that you don't have the military that you would otherwise wish to have solely because you can't bring in enough people to staff it. Yeah, I think that's a, a serious problem. And, and I would, you know, sometimes the recruiting crisis is framed as the Army has a recruiting problem or the U.S. military has a recruiting problem. A more accurate way to frame it is the United States of America has a recruiting problem for its military forces. There is, in my view at least, very little ownership of that problem by the American people at large, by even the Congress of the United States who represents the people We've gotten in, a, in some ways a bit spoiled over the last 20 years in that not only has the all-volunteer military, you know, trundled along without any particular obvious problems to the population to maintain the force, but it's done so in the face of two wars, a war in Iraq and a war in Afghanistan. So the American people not only have gotten used to having a volunteer military that doesn't involve them unless they choose to be involved, but they've also gotten used to the idea that the United States can fight wars, not just one, but two, and never have to conscript any Americans to fight in those wars. And, and so mm -hmm. the idea that the American people as a whole actually have you know, some ownership of the wars and some responsibility to fight in time of war, which has always been part of the American psyche up until 1973, is, and you know, we've written about this, is now gone, doesn't exist anymore, has been erased because of the great success for 50 years of the all-volunteer force in peace and war. And that's that's troubling in a world where we may see more prospects for conflict in the future, not just small-scale conflicts, but significant conflicts than we've seen in decades. If I could also add to that, what it also does is it makes it much easier for the American people to support going to war if they don't have a personal stake in it and are not likely to have any personal stake in it, right? If they're not likely to be drafted. The, the best example of this was there was a poll that was done 
in December of 2015, which was one month after the terrorist attacks in Paris that really were the first mm -hmm. ones that uh, ISIS was responsible for, the terrorist group ISIS. And so that would have been very much in people's minds at the time of the poll. It was a poll of young people. Uh, I think it was 18 to 29, although I could be wrong on the exact years. And it basically said, do you support using military force, uh, you know, going to war against ISIS? And more than 60% of the young people surveyed answered yes to that question, right? Supporting going to war. The next question asked, mm -hmm. would you be willing to serve in a military going to war against ISIS, even if there were too few other people, you know, even if they, it was said by national leaders that we needed more people in order to conduct that war? And more than 60% answered they would not serve, right? That is a profoundly mm -hmm. unhealthy thing, right? Because what that essentially does is it makes it easy to send other people's sons and daughters off to war. You need to have some link between the political decision to support a war or not and the willingness to serve in it. And that's, that has been the one huge overwhelming downside of having the all-volunteer force for 50 years and having it perform, ironically, so successfully well in the past two wars, right? You've severed that relationship between the political decision to going to war and the necessity of Americans to serve in that military for those purposes. Mm -hmm. And you were just talking that survey about young people, but do you think that it's reflected in the older generations of, of politicians as well? In my head, thinking about leaders in the civilian government, most of them don't have any military service, which that separation is good in a democracy, as you said, but are you seeing that same separation causing problems in governmental leadership as well? Yeah, it really is a problem that there are a lot of civilians now, not just in Congress, but also throughout the executive branch too, that don't have any exposure or familiarity with the military. As you know, for as being you know one of our phenomenal students at SICE, uh, you know, a lot of the young Americans don't have any exposure to the military. You guys get some in, in our school because we have military officers who are there. But it can be very difficult as a civilian to understand the military, again, if there's no personal connection there to someone who serves. And you need, you need civilians who understand the military. Again, you're not going to understand it in the same way as someone who serves. Uh, but to be exposed to people who do, who talk to people who do, to become experts in national security issues because civilians appropriately in a democracy provide oversight to the military. Those civilians, people like me, uh, are responsible for uh, making decisions about the use of force and the use of the military that take into account what that personal experience is like. And so it's very dangerous if government leaders at all levels who work in the national security area don't have at least some familiarity with the U.S. military. I think I'd add to that, though. I think both uh, Dr. Benzel and I both are very strong of the belief that you do not need to have served in U.S. military to be a civilian defense leader, to be the secretary of defense, to be an assistant secretary or undersecretary of defense, that we very much expect those people to be well-informed of the military. Some of them are as well-informed as anyone in uniform, but that does not require military service in order to have a credential to serve in those jobs that they clearly have a responsibility. And this extends to members of Congress who perhaps um, are, are less inclined in this direction, but they have a responsibility to understand their military and their oversight responsibilities for that military. But that does not require them to be veterans. You know, veterans bring some of that knowledge to the table naturally, of course. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, veterans in Congress and the House Armed Services Committee and Senate Armed Services Committee, veterans certainly in the Pentagon and civilian jobs, but in no way, shape or form is that a prerequisite. In some ways, it's better that well-informed civilians with their own independent viewpoints 
uh, are in those jobs, particularly in their senior jobs, to oversee military officers who've been you know, in uniform for 30 or 40 years. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. It's just it's becoming harder to be one of those well-informed civilians, but uh, it's still possible and it's necessary. It's a vital part of our democracy. So let's get into um, some of the causes then. Why do you think that civil military gap is is increasing? Well, the the causes of the civil military gap and the cause of the recruiting crisis are slightly different, right? And the the bigger mm-hmm. issue of the civil military gap, I think, is precisely this, that the all-volunteer force has severed the expectation between uh, citizenship and service. So now the more people that volunteer to go into the military, the more their families and people like them are exposed to the military. They tend to be assigned to large bases in the United States, particularly when you're talking about the Army, for example. There are several mega bases in the U.S. South. You know, you talk about (laughs) Fort Bragg being renamed Fort Liberty in North Carolina, which has more than 50,000 people on it. They're not interacting with civilian society, right? And you do that over time. And what happens is the kids of those people in uniform start knowing people who are in uniform as more and more of their friends. They don't have friends from the civilian communities located nearby if they're going to military schools or those schools nearby are so populated with military kids that they're still not meeting that many other people. And again, you can see how over time that exacerbates this gap between the military and the civilians, right? Because as fewer and fewer civilians ever get to meet anybody who's in the military, they're not exposed to that life. They don't understand anything about the military. They may not uh, have any interest in serving. They may not seriously consider that as a job possibility, right? Whereas the kids who are on these bases, they grow up. uh, They are exposed to the military. And we see this, that, that the vast majority of people joining the military now are a family member of someone who serves. Those figures are up to more than 80% of people in in some of the services have a family member. As high as 30% have a parent in the military, right? So you're seeing this all-volunteer force, which in every other way has been a tremendous success, over time has actually increased the isolation of the military from society and is having a lot of these very pernicious effects where, you know, the military becomes a world increasingly closed off to itself and separate from American society. And that's not healthy in a whole lot of ways, but uh, particularly, you know, as I said, for the decision to go to war and and in terms of recruiting. There's about 1% of Americans who serve. It's not the same equal 1% throughout the country, right? More of those Mm -hmm. people are coming from military families than from the rest of America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In my own case, interesting example, I grew up uh, in upstate New York, I never met an active duty military member when I was a kid ever. Um, but my father, uh, who had two younger brothers and all three of the boys in that family served in the military, one after World War II, one in Korea, and then one after the Korean War, volunteered to serve. I'm the oldest of four boys and a girl. All four brothers served in the military and myself for a career, the others for a shorter periods of time. And both my sons, uh, who grew up in, on military bases all over uh, the United States, both served in the military, both served in Afghanistan. So there's three generations there where every single male in in this family served in the military, which is, you know, kind of a citizen soldier tradition, if you will, in, in our family. Mm-hmm. I guess we never really thought about it that way or never, you know, never thought about that aspect at all, I don't think. But that is so common in military families and military circles out there. And, it, and in some ways, it's also a single point of failure for the volunteer military. If you rely so disproportionately 
on families of military members. Uh, my sons, when they went to Afghanistan, deployed to Afghanistan, wrote back notes and said how amazed they were to keep running into their childhood schoolmates from Fort Leavenworth <laughs> and Fort Lewis and Fort Bragg when they were in, in Afghanistan because they too had joined the military. Their parents were in the military. And so, you know, that's that's a very dangerous over-reliance on where one very small group of people who kind of self-select into this field. And it's particularly troubling in a time of war because the sacrifices that that group is going to take, not only in the recent wars, but maybe in a future war, are going to be disproportionately heavily weighted towards, you know, those, those small set of American families that are really isolated from the greater population and, and the greater sacrifice that's going to be required in any future war you know, equitably should be spread across the population, not across a very tiny slice who, you know, decided for various reasons to do this because there's a family connection. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes a lot of sense. And, and Dr. Pensahel, as you pointed out, there's sort of kind of two related simultaneous issues here. There's the cultural divide that's growing between the military and the civilian world. Um, and then also the very practical issue of these recruiting numbers. So what are some of the problems or, or causes of the current recruiting crisis? Yeah, so it's a great question. And the answer is complicated, of course, because, again, there are a number of different things going on at once. The first is in the area of eligibility, right? The, the first area yeah. is how many people can serve. We haven't gotten to the question of who wants to serve yet, but just who is eligible to serve, who can meet the military requirements. And for the past decade or so, uh, the number of young Americans who are eligible to serve in the military, who can meet all of the standards, has hovered around 30%. That is an extremely low number to start with. Uh, and mm -hmm. that is driven by a whole number of problems in civilian society, including the obesity epidemic, right? There are a lot of people, young people especially, who are overweight and they can't meet the military fitness standards. Um, but there are a whole variety of other factors that are affecting that eligibility to keep it at that 30% level. What's happened in the past couple of years is that that eligibility rate has suddenly plummeted from what had been a stable, you know, not a good number, but at least a stable number <laughs> of about 30%. Last year, it plummeted to 23%, which is a huge drop for one year. Part of what's going on there is some of the after effects of the pandemic. So physical fitness went down throughout the United States during the pandemic because kids weren't getting outside, sports teams you know, weren't meeting, so on and so forth. So some of it's a lag from that. Some of it is a, uh, the pandemic's effect on scholastic aptitude. The, the academic scores, test scores of young Americans have gone down across the board. And there's a standardized test called the ASVAB that prospective enlisted personnel need to take. And so there are a lot of folks who suddenly aren't making those scores because test scores dropped during the mm -hmm. pandemic. For those two factors, uh, the services have done some really creative and, and good thinking, new programs designed to address those to help. They've instituted programs to help recruits who are otherwise eligible get their fitness scores and their test scores up to the standards. But still, those are still small compared to the overall scope of the problem. But those are those are the temporary ones. They will at some point go back. They're not going to necessarily, you know, snap back in one year, right? The educational effects of the pandemic are going to have a longer effect, but they have a very clear cause in the pandemic. There are a lot of other things that are also affecting eligibility that aren't related to the pandemic. 
one of the ones that that we highlight in a, a column that we recently wrote about the recruiting crisis it is the increasing use and, and legalization of marijuana in some states. The military has a very mm -hmm. strict anti-drug policy. It does not let in people who have any sort of drug record or experience. Uh, but a lot of young Americans are now living in states where it is legal to smoke marijuana. They either don't know or really aren't thinking about the fact that it remains illegal at the federal level. And so that's mm -hmm. a disqualifying factor. So you can't join the military if there's uh, a, a history of drug use. Now, you can get waivers. The military is spending a lot of time and energy granting waivers to people who might have one or two things in the past. But as we wrote in that column, that is, I think, one of the things that the services could be addressing. Professor Barno wrote a beautiful line in our column that I give him credit for, which says, a drug-free military doesn't need to start in high school. It's okay as long as once you join the military, you remain drug-free. So there are some things like that. Mm -hmm. Why don't we uh, talk about that issue of, um, I think you call it propensity to serve? Yeah, that's what Terry calls it. And, you know, that, that, that seems like it's also, you know, the other side of this coin. Well, that's, you know, there's several potential solutions to that. One is that the U.S. military needs to get out and meet the American people. You know, as Professor Metzell noted, the military is concentrated on big bases. It's geographically concentrated in the south and the west uh, of the United States because that's where there's land and good weather for training. Uh, if you're in the Northeast of the United States or maybe the North Central part of the country, you don't see military folks. You don't have military bases there. You don't have exposure to what it means to serve in the military. And so those areas are chronically underrepresented in terms of recruits, especially the Northeast, where the number of military bases has plummeted over the last 30 or 40 years. That's certainly one important thing to do. But I think the reasons why propensity has also gone down it has increasingly declined over time, but it hit new lows in, in the past uh, 18 months as well that go beyond that, even though I think that is absolutely important. Part of that, I think, is the end of the war in Afghanistan with the nation not mm -hmm. being at war. And frankly, uh, whatever you thought of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, whether you thought that was a good idea or a bad idea, certainly the way it was executed, the way it looked on television to most Americans, um, it looked chaotic and incompetent, even if, though the, it was slightly more complicated than that, right? The way that it looked to the American people did not inspire confidence in the U.S. military. So the mm -hmm. end of the war and the military not looking so good during the evacuation, I think, has led fewer people to want to serve. There's, there's no more 9-11 effect for a long time. Uh, the people who experienced the 9-11 attacks were very motivated to join these wars. I think that the idea of going to war and deploying was actually very attractive for some people. And so people joined because of that. Well, that's not there anymore. Public confidence in the military has also plummeted. Confidence in all U.S. institutions has gone down. I want to say that from mm -hmm. the start. And the military is still one of the most admired institutions in American society. If you look at you know, confidence rates in the presidency, in Congress, in the news media, they're all much, much smaller than the military. But the confidence levels in the military have dropped more than 14 points in two years. Again, a, a very sudden drop. And that has a lot to do with, I think, again, the, the images coming out of the evacuation of Afghanistan. But I also think it's related to uh, some of the protest movements that started in the summer of 2020 for Black Lives Matter. People saw mm -hmm. folks, uh, you know, they saw forces out on the streets that looked like people in the military. 
for the most part, they weren't military. For the most part, they were police and federal civilian authorities. In a couple of cases, there were National Guard troops who were called out. But there were people in uniforms out on the streets doing things to hinder the protest or, in some people's opinions, maybe not doing enough. But either way, the fact that people couldn't distinguish between military forces and police forces or federal law enforcement forces, I think, has had an effect on people's view of the military, even though it's not a correct impression. They were not, for the most part, military forces out there. So you get a lot of those things coming together. Mm -hmm. You get to the underlying problem, which Professor Barno just stated, which most people aren't exposed to the military. And so you get fewer and fewer people who are interested. Yeah, I think I'd add to that, um, which we also noted in, in our recent column, is that uh, this idea of wokeism that has now you know, been seized upon by uh, parts of the very conservative media, certainly a, a part of the Republican Party and the conservative wing of that party, is beginning to undermine confidence in the military in, in ways that are pernicious and, and really not you know, reflected in any facts, any data that shows that interest in diversity, equity, and inclusion somehow is eroding military readiness. There's been a lot of uh, unfounded accusations made about that that have picked up a lot of energy in the last two or three years. And I think are having an effect, particularly in, in some of the uh, core constituencies that the military recruits from on military families, veterans' families, you know, more conservative parts of the country that are very much um, sometimes seized by this narrative. I just did some testimony in a congressional subcommittee here about a week ago disputing this contention that you know woke, wokeism somehow is weakened today's military and it's it's affecting our readiness and it's taking time away from preparing for war fighting requirements all of which i think is totally unsubstantiated and the service chiefs and the chairman have said as much so but that's starting to have a psychological effect, I think, and that may be reflected in some of these numbers and confidence among a certain segment of the population. Yeah, there. I think that's that's right. And again, there, there's no hard evidence of this. All of the, the service chiefs, the chairman of the Joint Chief, as he just said, have all said that this is not a problem. They're seeing their readiness numbers being fine. But at a certain point, perceptions become reality, even if they're not based in mm -hmm. fact. There seems to be a lot of uh, incentive for certain members of Congress to keep, you know, to keep that narrative up. I think because uh, it is resonating among a certain segment of the population, they continue to say it. And I think that what Professor Barno said is exactly right. I think that that has gained some traction in the military and veterans community. And again, this, you know, he referred to that community of folks as uh, a single point of failure in terms of recruiting, right? If that narrative takes hold and is believed by the young people in military families, they are going to want to be less likely to serve. So again, it can mm -hmm. be completely not based in fact and still have actual practical consequences, which I think we're seeing today. All right. Well, all of this is a little bit um, dark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the outlooks personally after this conversation um, have me a little bit worried. I am curious, you mentioned some things that the army is doing right now to improve the eligibility requirements. Are there other things that are being done on the civilian side or the military side or that could be done, in your opinion, to, to help improve on some of these problems? There are several things we suggested to improve both uh, eligibility and propensity. And Professor Benson has noted a couple of those on how we could have more people become eligible. 
Uh, one other thing I don't think she mentioned is that we have a significant number of young American men and women now that are being treated for mental health issues in their adolescence uh, with commonly prescribed medications that are very effective and the military's screening for medical challenges has not kept up with that technology or that reality. And so today, if you're in the military and you need to be treated for depression or other conditions that are you know, problematic from a psychological standpoint, that is perfectly acceptable. You're, you're not considered to be a challenge to you know, stay in the force. The military doesn't discharge you based on that, but they prevent you from entering if you have the very same hmm. symptoms and the very same diagnosis, which makes very little sense. So that's an area, again, with an increasing number of teens out there that are being treated for ADHD and a number of other related ailments. Very successfully, the military probably needs to take a harder look at altering their entrance requirements to make that much less of an exception and much more something does not require a waiver to join. Yeah, this is a big one. Again, there's there that trend has been going up among young people. It's been going up in society in general, but particularly among young people even before the pandemic, but was tremendously exacerbated by the pandemic. Again, for all of these eligibility requirements, applicants can request waivers, right, to say, I don't think I should be disqualified because I don't meet this standard, I'm fine otherwise, et cetera, et cetera. And there are a lot of people who have had mental health issues who are going through the process of applying for waivers, but that takes a tremendous amount of time, energy, paperwork. It is a terrible way to do business. I feel particularly mm -hmm. strongly about this one, and I've talked about this openly, um, I've suffered from clinical depression. I've been on some low amount of medication my whole life. It would have excluded me from serving. And one of the recommendations that we have in the column is that the way that people be assessed for whether their mental health conditions are something that are treatable and can be dealt with, as opposed to people who have conditions which are much more serious and cannot be treated, who should be excluded from military service is to model the uh, application process on the way that mental health issues are handled for people with security clearances. You are allowed to have a security clearance if you have a mental health condition. And the way the, the security investigators deal with that is they are allowed to ask three and only three questions of the person who is applying for security clearance of their mental health provider. It is essentially, does the person have a diagnosable condition that would interfere with their ability to protect classified information, right? You could just substitute in for that to serve effectively in the U.S. military. The second question is, if the answer is yes, they have something disqualifying, please explain. Um, and the third question is, what is the prognosis, right? Those are reasonable, you know, questions to ask. It should be, instead of having to go for a waiver process, that an applicant who has a diagnosable mental health condition should be able to, able to provide a verifiable letter from their doctor that answers those three questions. And if the doctor certifies that it is treatable and will not interfere with their military service, they should be allowed to serve. Thinking about things differently in those ways, I think, are the ways that the services have to start thinking about addressing the recruiting crisis. Anytime you make any change to the standards, for whatever reason, people will say, well, you're lowering the standards or you're changing the standards. Some of the standards needs to stay absolutely where they are, but some of the other ones just reflect the way that business has been done for a long time. They don't uh, reflect changing realities and really needed to be updated to ensure that people who are otherwise fit to serve are allowed to serve and not excluded.
Mm-hmm. Well, and I can imagine an 18-year-old, for example, who wants to serve, but because of some of the reasons that you were talking about, doesn't have a mentor in the military and doesn't have enough information, doesn't know that they can get a waiver exactly. for some of these issues, and then just decides to, to leave that path behind. Right. If they talk to a recruiter, then the recruiter could tell them about a waiver process. The recruiters are doing that to help uh, you know, increase the likelihood. But if you just read in the newspaper, or if there, even if there's just myths that saying, hey, you can't join the military, there's nothing you can do, you're going to be deterred there just based on a lack of information. And and those are precisely the people we can't afford to have decide not to try to enlist. Now, we are running up on time. I've got just a couple more questions. A big one that I think a lot of our listeners, considering their age demographic, would want to know is what is the likelihood of a draft being reinstituted? Yeah, I think it's unlikely, uh, but I would not rule it out. We still maintain a mechanism with selective service and registration for selective service for uh, 18-year-old males in this country. Everybody who's a male 18-year-old at some point in time probably has registered for the draft, whether they knew it or not, because it, it is law. And sometimes that's done automatically when you get a driver's license and other things. So we actually think that that should be much more of a visible process where a, um, both men and women are required to register, and B, that that entails a positive understanding of what you're actually registering for. It's not something that's automatic, that you're generally unaware of that, because the, the eligibility for military draft is you know enshrined in law in the United States. It's been a longstanding part of how the U.S. raises a larger military in a time of war. has not been used since 1973, but is still out there. So I think the mechanisms are still there. The, the probability of it happening, I think, is very low unless there is a national emergency, as Dr. Benesel noted earlier, of a 9-11 scale or greater, which is in a wor- the world we live in now between you know, particularly threats from perhaps a rising China and the possibility of conflict in the Western Pacific, perhaps over Taiwan or other contested areas, and a possibility, as we've seen with the war in Ukraine, of that war expanding and pulling in NATO countries, including the United States. Each of those are very plausible scenarios for conflicts that could happen in the next five to 10 years that are much, much more dangerous, much, much more challenging than anything we've seen in Iraq or Afghanistan over our 20 years there. So even though it's the, the idea of a draft been generally erased from the American consciousness in that in a in today's world, this morning at, at 8 a.m., the chance of enacting a draft are next to zero. You know, in the next you know weeks, months, years, in facing one of these conflicts, should they erupt, I, I think that the United States would have to look very hard at how it's going to raise enough manpower to be able to deal with the kind of casualties that we're seeing, for example, today in, in Eastern Europe between Ukraine and Russia. I use the 9-11 example because I was across the street from the Pentagon on 9-11 when, when it was hmm. attacked. And I firmly believe that if President Bush had gone on television that night for whatever reason, I'm not saying he should have, but if, you know, in the scenario, if he had gone on television that night and said, we need a draft to take this war to the people who just attacked us this morning, my own personal view is that there would have been grumbling, but people would have accepted it, right? Because that was a national trauma at such a scale, you know, and that involved 3,000 American dead. I always tell military audiences who believe fervently there will never be a draft because draftees are terrible, their conscripts will never do that. Um, my argument to them is, okay, well, you know, if you disagree with me and you think that, you know, that there wouldn't have been support for a draft on the 9-11, then does your answer change if you look at an event in the United States that caused 30,000 casualties instead of 3,000 or, God forbid, 300,000? 
right? There is a level. I'm not positive where it is, but there is a level where there will be, it could be something, an attack on this country where that debate, as Professor Barnard said, will, will change almost instantly. And that's why we need to be prepared for this. That's why we need to make sure that the draft is modernized you know, brought up to the kinds of standards that we need. It is a, you know, in case of emergency, break glass force. Uh, but we cannot assume we will never have to break that glass. Mm -hmm. Well, and I imagine as the scale of an event increases, like you were saying, the number of people affected by an attack increases. That also means the number of people who have one or two degrees of separation, who, who knows someone who is a victim of an attack increases. And, and those people will probably have a, a greater willingness to go along with the draft or a greater propensity to volunteer. But relying on being attacked to boost recruiting numbers is, is, not, <laughs> is not an effective strategy, unfortunately. And hopefully it's not something that we will have to encounter at any point in, in the near future. Now, one final question that we do like to ask all of our guests, just because the title of our podcast is Small World, Big Problems. Are there any other issues that are related to these topics that you just want to touch on that you'd like to tease if there's something that you think deserves more attention in the public consciousness? One of the topics that uh, comes up when we talk about recruiting challenges in many cases is the idea of national service. Very few Americans know, but in 2020, a congressional commission that was looking at national service actually reported out about the exact same time the pandemic started. So its report you know, disappeared in uh, a greater crisis out there. Mm -hmm. But the commission looked at the idea of national, military, and public service and was really chartered to discuss how Americans could, you know, a greater number of Americans, particularly young Americans, could participate either mandatorily or optionally in some type of national service to give something back to the country, to have some connection to the nation beyond you know, their own personal economies, their job, their neighborhood, their families, to, to have some connection to a broader you know, national purpose and also to connect them to people that they would not normally encounter. In in a draft military, that was common every day. When you walked in the door in a draft military, you were running into people from every economic strata. You were running from people from different races and backgrounds, educational backgrounds. And so that was a great leveling effect for the nation. It had some pernicious effects clearly as well, but it but it introduced Americans to men and women, their peers that they would never have encountered in in a normal life. And so the commission actually looked at that and it ended up coming back saying it should remain optional, but it's, it certainly is a shortcoming that we have as a nation right now. We don't have anything that helps bring people together to connect them to a, a greater national purpose and to have them feel some sense of responsibility for the nation as a whole as opposed to just themselves. And so I think that issue is not dead yet. I think it's got to be thought about. I think you know, the broader issue of how you as an individual you know, have some connection, some some degree of commitment to serving your nation, not necessarily in uniform, but in some way, shape, or form as part of your life experience. Not uncommon in some other countries, Israel, you know, some of the Nordic countries, et cetera, but not something we've ever done here. And that, that probably needs a bit more exploration. Mm -hmm. I was smiling when you asked that question about, you know, what aren't we talking about? Because frankly, in most interviews and most times we get asked to talk about things, the recruiting crisis and civil military relations is the thing that we mentioned that people aren't paying enough attention to and that needs to have uh, more discussion. Again, you know, we talked about the, the military potentially being too small just based on recruiting trends uh, to do what the nation needs it to do in potential future conflicts. Um, 
But as Professor Barno noted, this is very often seen as a military problem. It's not just a military problem. It's an America problem, right? It's a national level problem that affects every American, whether people are aware of it or not. Um, and so I wish that this conversation would happen more broadly. You know, it does happen among the, what I affectionately call the defense nerd sector, you know, the people who <laughs> work in defense analysis and think about these things. And certainly folks in the military are very aware of this crisis uh, as they try mm -hmm. to make their numbers every year. Uh, but I wish there were much more of a national conversation about this. I hope that the type of people who listen to podcasts like this will not just uh, think more about these issues for themselves, but talk to their family members, people who aren't interested in defense, right? We, we need to be having this conversation among the nation as a whole, and I, I fear too often uh, that it's not. Mm -hmm. um, well, thank you both again for coming on the show. I feel like I could just sit here and pick both of your brains for forever, but unfortunately we can't do that. But, but th these are fascinating topics, and I'm glad our listeners got a chance to learn more about it. If our listeners want to keep up with either of you or the work that you publish, what's the best way for them to do that? We publish a column at War on the Rocks that comes out periodically. We, there's always a link at the bottom to sign up for our newsletter where we'll send them to you directly. To, uh, or you can email us. Our emails are publicly available at the Johns Hopkins faculty website. All right. Well, Dr. Nora Bensahel, General David Barno, thank you both for coming on Small World Big Problems. Thanks. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you again to General Barnow and Dr. Bensahel for coming on the show. For all of our listeners out there, Small World Big Problems is a student-led production sponsored by the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins University's Paul H. Nitsa School of Advanced International Studies located here in Washington, D.C. If you would like to become part of the podcast, suggest a guest for the show, or send us your feedback, please email us at SAIS, that is S-A-I-S, strategy podcast at gmail.com again that is s-a-i-s strategy podcast at gmail.com small world big problems can be found on spotify apple amazon or wherever you get your podcasts we'll be back in two weeks with a new host and our next guest see you all soon